You're listening to K-Squid, Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. Many voices, community radio. This is Story Behind the Story. I'm your host, Clara Shirley Appel. My guest today is New York Times bestselling author and former Time Magazine book critic, Lev Grossman. Lev's wildly popular Magicians trilogy received widespread critical acclaim and was even adapted into a TV series, which ended this past year after five seasons. Today, we're talking about his new middle grade novel, The Silver Arrow. It's a classic adventure story with modern themes woven in. Our conversation was recorded in early September as part of a live event hosted by Kepler's Literary Foundation. Hi. Hi. Well, Lev, thank you for coming to join us at Kepler's virtual space today. Um, I want to start, I would guess that a lot of people here know you as the author of The Magicians, which is an adult fantasy novel. And before that, you wrote and published two other novels aimed at adults, Warp and Codex. So what made you want to write a novel for kids? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it's a good question. It's a fun, it, and it's always, it's a funny thing when an author changes um, genres um, or sort of, I don't know, moves into a space they haven't been in before, because um, I know that I always feel a little bit like, um, uh, it seems like sort of unseemly somehow. Like I sort of have a feeling like, what, you're doing, pull your neck in, you know, we, we just want more, you know, magician's books from you. Um, so it feels odd, I feel like, and I've done this several times. I, I wrote literary novels, I then became a literary critic. Um, then I went back to writing novels and everybody said, you're writing novels now? And I had to remind them that I'd already written some novels because nobody noticed when I wrote the first, <laughs> the first few novels. Um, and now I'm, I wrote a novel for children. Um, uh, that said, um, you, you know, from, from the other side, I, I spend a lot of time being a writer. I spend more time being a dad. I have three children. Um, so, you know, this this voice, this, this storytelling voice um, that comes out when I write for children is a very familiar one to me. It's one I use a lot. And it felt very natural to write something, to write something in it. But at the same time, I realized it sort of, it, it, it comes sort of out of the blue to um, people who don't know me personally. So what's different when you're writing for kids instead of for adults? What do you find rewarding and challenging about writing for each of those different audiences? I feel like I could answer this question either way because there's a ton that's different and there's, uh, there's a ton that's sort of weirdly the same. When I started writing um, in, you know, I, I started writing Silver Arrow, part of me thought, oh, you know, I, I came in with it. I came in with a, uh, what, what uh, um, in a Greek tragic sense would be called hubris, that pride that challenges the gods and foretells disaster. Um, I was sort of like, oh, well, now I'll just have to dumb everything down because now I'm talking to kids. As it turns out, kids are not less smart than adults. They know much less than adults do, um, but they are equally as smart. Uh, and they also, like, just not just sort of intellectually and kind of math-wise, but emotionally, they have the same, they feel rage yeah. and they feel happiness and envy and, you know, embarrassment. They feel all the same. They're not different uh, feelings that, that kids have. They have the same feelings as us. Um, so I, it was surprising how much of the voice stayed the same. You know, I found myself, I never found myself dumbing anything down, actually. I never found myself writing anything uh, that a child would not get, um, because it turns out they sort of, they get everything. Uh, so that was sort of surprisingly the same. You know, structurally, it's quite different, uh, which is a really boring thing to say. So I'll just say it really, really briefly. A grown-up novel, like one of those magician's novels, when you're a writer, you don't pay attention to the page numbers because page numbers change depending on how big the font is and the line spacing, whatever. You think about the number of words. There are 145,000 words in a magician's novel. Um, in fact, all three of the novels are almost exactly 145,000 words. When I began to write 
the Silver Arrow, I hunted down a um, pirated PDF of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory just so I could get a word count for Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, which turned out to be about 35,000 words. Um, so it's a lot fewer words. It is approximately 35 divided by 145, whatever fraction that is, less words. So there's a lot fewer plots. In a, in a current novel, you have like the A plot and the B plot, and then there's like sort of the C through H plots, which are sort of kicking around in the background, getting quietly launched and resolved. And uh, structurally, with the Silver Arrow, there's really just sort of an A plot and a B plot, and that's all the plots that you get. Um, so it, it, it's in a funny way, it's 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 structurally more, much more simple, but verbally quite as, as complex. Well, I want to bring in some, we're already getting some listener questions coming in. So I want to bring in um, one of those right now. We have one from Sam who asks, who is your favorite character in the Silver Arrow? And in everything you've written also, but the Silver Arrow we'll start with. Let's see. This, amazingly, this is a question that I have not ever asked myself. I think that I really enjoyed there's a, there's a there's a snake in in the silver arrow who is he is a, he's a snake he is green he's an eastern green mamba i didn't realize there were lots of flavors of mamba but apparently if you're going to be bitten by an incredibly venomous snake in africa that's a mamba you have several choices of kinds of mambas that can bite you um so this is an eastern green mamba i became very fond of him um because of course he is intensely venomous and deadly and all of the animals at all times are in the back of their head. They're thinking, I'm hanging out with this guy. But if he bit me, I would simultaneously have a heart attack and suffocate, you know, and my flesh would fall off and everything else. And the, the, but the, the snake doesn't, never forgets that either. And he's a little bit self-conscious about it, rather shy. And then also, also, also sort of very proud of how powerfully venomous he is as well. He might be. Something about that combination made, me, made him really pleasurable to write for. And I couldn't say exactly why, but I'm going to go with the snake, the green, the eastern green mamba, as opposed to the western green mamba, which is another kind of mamba. A lot of mambas have. <laughs> I think it's very smart that you didn't pick one of the three characters based on your kids. That would have been <laughs> Im politically, um, yeah, an unpopular move. <laughs> so how is writing magic different when it's for kids versus when it's for adults? That's a super good question, um, because uh, I, you know, with the magician's books, not surprisingly, there's a ton of magic in them. And the doing of magic is very central and it's done in a particular way. And when I uh, started writing the, the, the Silver Arrow, I sort of thought, um, oh, well, this will be a sort of a break. I don't, I won't have to think of lots of spells for people to cast. And there won't be this thing of like, if they're getting into problems, they'll have to, they'll have to cast a spell. They'll have to figure out some other way to get out of their problems besides casting a spell. But then of course there is, as it turns out, magic in the world. Steam trains don't actually talk. Animals don't actually talk. There's actually a lot of magic going on there, but it happens in a much more, um, people aren't looking directly at the magic. That's actually, the, it, what I like about it in a way is the magic, it's not the most important thing in the room. And actually there's a sort of private joke that happens about four chapters in where one of the characters reveals that he is in fact a wizard. And it's sort of like, he says it and it's kind of like, okay, that's, we get that, that's interesting, but it's not actually what's important going on right now. Something much more important is happening than wizards. Um, so it's, I find it amusing that there's a character in the book who's a wizard and who also is not the main character or even the second lead. He's kind of just, he's like, you know, there's wizards, there's janitors, there's just, you know, lots of different kinds of people. Wizards aren't special. Well, one thing I, I find I'm thinking of as we're talking about this is that in, in the magicians and in a lot of sort of traditional adult fantasy, the magic is something that humans master and control. And as you were just saying, in the Silver Arrow, magic is just kind of part of the world. It's part of the ecosystem. Yes. 
which I think kind of reflects a lot of the themes of the book. Was that something that you were thinking about consciously? Not that consciously. I mean, there was a there was a moment when I was writing the um, magicians actually when one of the characters uh, becomes aware that magic is a human thing, um, generally speaking. But somebody becomes aware at some point that whales are also spellcasters. There are two species on Earth that cast that can work magic, and humans are one of them, and whales are another. And it's kind of a throwaway in the magicians. It's like just like a little detail, um, which I never really come back to, or I haven't come back to it yet. Um, but it really stayed with me, the idea that animals, uh, the idea of animals working magic and animals doing spells. It's in the back of my mind, although I have not, um, it will be something that comes up much more in the sequel, um, that magic is an animal thing rather than a human thing. And it's, it's sort of, it's a little bit eccentric for a human to do it. And Uncle Herbert does it, but it, you know, it's, it's mostly an animal thing. It's mostly something that lives in the, um, the world of animals and nature. Um, and it's interesting because humans come in and they have a lot of power over nature. They really kick nature off balance. Um, and they, but they, they do it, it by non-magical means. And it's interesting because what you have a world where magic is there, but magic and magic is powerful, but it's also weak in some ways. It's very vulnerable. So I want to add in another audience question that I think is relevant to the whole animal thing. This is from Evelyn, who I think you know. Um, hey, Lev, in The Silver Arrow, Kate talks to reptiles, birds, and all kinds of mammals, and you've mentioned insects for the sequel. Will Kate be talking to any fish or marine animals anytime soon? The answer is yes. But, um, and I, I'm thinking about the fact that, that there are no talking insects or fish in The Silver Arrow, and I think it's because I, was, I, I, I felt like I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready to write an insect, and I wasn't ready to write a fish. I, I, it was always really important to me that the animals, you know, the, some of the voice of the animals come from a very animal place. Like, uh, it wouldn't just be like they were humans who looked like animals. They would really physically be animals. Um, and I can remember sitting at my desk, and I, when I would write an animal, I would just sort of try to do the animal. I'm not going to do it right now because it would be embarrassing. But I would try to, you know, physically kind of like, <laughs> what would it really feel like to be a porcupine? Um, um, and then when the prospect arose of having um, a talking insect, I kind of like, it was, I just, I kind of backed away. Like, I'm not ready. <laughs> I'm not ready to be an insect. The day may come. And I feel the same way about fish, which I love fish. Not many people know that I'm an avid snorkeler, but um, fish are really exciting and interesting to me. But I also feel as though they come from a very different place. And I want to honor that when I write my first talking fish. Um, and that hasn't happened yet. But I think it will. I think it will. I wrote myself into a little bit of a corner um, uh, with the silver arrow, and I don't want to be specific about it, but there may be a submarine in the offing. In fact, it'll be sort of hard to avoid in the sequel. So uh, I've sort of set myself up for a confrontation with a talking fish. <laughs> well, something to look forward to. I'm also personally hoping for a talking huntsman spider. Oh, man, you, 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 you can't joke about that. You've seen huntsman. You've been to Australia, right? You've seen I have not seen them. I have heard. Oh, you stories. can't joke about that. Apparently, they if kiss. you look on 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 YouTube, you will find somewhere a video of a huntsman spider who has caught a snake in his web, and he's preparing to eat the, the snake because he's just that big and just he's a powerful spider. Um, and you know, this is not like a rare spider, like a mysterious tarantula. There are huntsmen all over Australia. You see them all the time. It's like a daddy long legs, but on steroids. It's, it's right. They're very large. They're just very large. See at the zoo. There's a lot at the zoo or in the, um, the, the, the public park. Not because they have a spider area, but just because there are spiders all over everything. <laughs> well, uh, taking a slightly different tack, 
A lot of contemporary fantasy is subversive. It takes tropes from classic fantasy novels and turns them on their heads. And in fact, in The Magicians, your best-selling adult fantasy series, it, it does just that too. But The Silver Arrow is a much more straightforward fantasy novel, much more like the classic children's fantasy that you or I read growing up. And I, I think he said in an interview that you wanted it to have a more classic feel. So why is that? Well, I'm somebody who who writes fantasy from a place of, 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 of deeply loving fantasy. And if I feel like if I'm going to, um, uh, I feel like I'm fairly fluent in the conventions of fantasy. So I know when I'm kind of taking one and going the other way with it. Um, but I also feel like you really have to, you have to earn it, you know, and you have to really want to mm. overthrow a convention um, if you in, in in whatever genre you're, you're writing, um, because you give up a lot when you when you when you abandon the convention or change it, um, you have to make sure you're getting a lot. And I found myself too fond of many of the um, you know the tropes of this kind of storytelling to mess with them too much. Um, although I do feel like I you know I I I, I tried to do it in little ways. I mean the the most important way, the major way, was returning to this idea of talking animals, which is so central to so many books that I love. The Narnia books, um, particularly The Once and Future King, which was such an influential book for me, um, uh, especially in the realm of this kind of storytelling, because there were a lot of animals that talked. Um, and uh, he was very good at this physical thing, the physical thing of, tur of turning into an animal. I bet he was acting up as animals at his desk. And yet, you know, it tends to be the case in stories like that, that when the animals um, meet the humans, the humans are the main event. You know, the humans have come to save mm -hmm. the day or come to, here, come to me, little human. I'm going to tell you about what it's like to be a badger and then you'll be wiser and know things. You know, it was very important to me um, that for animals, animals are the main event. They are very uncomfortably aware of humans because humans have really just damaged and scrambled the, the world that they live in. And so when a human does turn up and join the conversation, the animals have a lot to say to that human, you know, and they don't look up to that human. <laughs> and the human is in the story that, that they are living, which is as real a story as the, what the humans are living. Humans are not the heroes, humans are the villains. You know, if a, if a human comes along, they have some splaining to do. <laughs> That's always a little bit nicely into this next question I have for you. What were some of your favorite books when you were Kate's age and what made those books stick with you? It's, it's easier to say what they were than to say why they, why they stuck with me. Um, I, I, I suppose I should cop to, I am on record as, as loving the Chronicles of Narnia. And I really did. I did love the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, and I didn't pick and choose. I loved all the Chronicles of Narnia. I even loved the last battle, which nobody likes, but um, I really did. I really did, and and do love the last battle. I think it's an amazing book. I I loved Roald Dahl. Um, I loved um, the Lloyd Alexander books, Taron uh, Wanderer, and all those. Even though I can remember almost nothing of what happened in them, I re I remember that I loved them. I I loved uh, T. H. White, um, Sword in the Stone. I wasn't old enough to later really to read the other books of the Once in Future King, but the, the Sword in the Stone. I was really obsessed. Really obsessed with. Fritz Lieber, who is a, a writer who is not that much read anymore, but who I think for a lot of writers my, of my age loomed very large. I mean, as he was a much bigger deal than, for example, Tolkien to me. Um, I read Tolkien, hmm. uh, but I massively read Fritz Lieber, the stories of the Fafford and the Grey Mouser stories. You know, something these books had, did for me or gave to me, I grew up in a house that was very, I felt, I felt very kind of de, de, 
deracinated. Um, my parents were not overtly religious in any way. Um, my mother was Anglican, uh, my father was Jewish, but they both kind of let all that kind of go. You know, growing up in the suburbs that I, where, I li where I lived, that, you know, it wasn't a place, you know, it had some history. It was in Massachusetts, um, but it didn't have that sort of deep history that, you know, you sort of long for in the mm -hmm. place where you are rooted. I felt, in short, a kind of absence of, of myth uh, mythology. I didn't kind of inherit a kind of legendarium uh, and, and, and these sort of stories that I could use to kind of explain the world and myself to myself. Um, so I think I was very attracted to these fantasy stories. And I'll, I'll include the Norse mythology, which was a huge obsession of mine, as um, you know, a way to um, sort of access a world that felt mystified. I, I grew up in a very disenchanted kind of molly kind of suburban world that didn't you know it it, it I, I wasn't in love with it i read a lot you read a lot of writers who were truly in love with the places that they grew up and you know and as those places had a kind of mythic feeling to them and uh where i grew up really didn't mm -hmm. um and yet i needed to feel that there was somewhere that uh, that did um and these were books that you know they gave that to me how many times did you try your wardrobe see if the back went through. <laughs> I'm not sure that I was in possession of a wardrobe. But I also, you know, <laughs> I, I, I grew up, the world that I lived in felt very disenchanted to me. Uh, I was also really obsessed with peanuts. And I think that because one of the things that peanuts did was really honor feelings of kind of sadness and disenchantedness in children. I was a very disenchanted child. Um, and so, I, you know, I wouldn't, I never would have played that game because the uh, furniture in my house never felt like it was gonna lead anywhere in particular. Mm. Um, not that I didn't on some level truly believe that I was uh, um, destined for Narnia, but it was very unclear how I was going to get there. Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! Tune in to our award-winning morning news program right here during primetime, 8 o'clock weekday mornings, right here on K-Squid, on KSQD. Our independent news program offers diverse perspectives, unique opinions unheard in the mainstream media, live as the news unfolds. Tune in for Democracy Now!, The War and Peace Report, weekday mornings at 8, right here on KSQD Community Radio, 90.7 FM. If you're just joining me, my guest today is New York Times bestselling author Lev Grossman, whose middle-grade novel The Silver Arrow came out last month. So in another interview, he said, your novels always start from a feeling of irritation with something you love, some half-truth or missing piece that you start to fill in for yourself. And personally, I love this because it, it makes me think of writers as oysters now. They, you know, get irritated and pearls come out. Um, so what was the irritant at the heart that led to the Silver Arrow? Yeah, there wasn't one. This, this, this was different. Um, I said that, and it was true of, of most of the stuff that I write. <laughs> I def this definitely came out of a feeling of reading, reading Roald Dahl, reading um, Enid Blyton, reading um, E.B. White, and having that feeling like, oh, wait, 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 I, I, could, I know how to do this. And I felt like I understood how these stories worked. I, I felt like I recognized that voice and thought, wait, I have a voice like that. And I know that I could, I could tell a story like that. I know that I could. I know, not that I didn't have feelings that I could, like there were things that I could, I wanted to correct, especially about the, about the animals, for example, that idea of humans showing up and the animals are like, oh, the saviors are here. That, I, that felt exceptionally dated to me. But, you know, as, as, you, as, we, as we discussed earlier, I really kind of embraced a lot of the traditions um, uh, and if anything, I, I, I felt a, an irritation with some of the more recent uh, middle grade fiction. Um, uh, the Silver Arrow is a little bit of a throwback, in a way, to the kind of storytelling 
that um, you know that was done by these kind of mid-century writers. When I read uh, something like um, Thirteen Story Treehouse, uh, which is very popular in my house, or um, Dogman, which I find hilarious, I want to be very clear. Um, I love those books, but there's no part of me that recognizes that voice. There's no part of me that thinks, "Oh, I ought to try my hand at you know a Dogman-like um, piece of writing." I could never do it. I could never do it in a million years. But every once in a while, you you read something. And it's not that it irritates you, but rather you recognize it and think, there's something like that in me. I've got one of those in here somewhere and um, I've got to get it out. I, I want to get into the nuts and bolts a little bit, but before we do, I think we should have you read a little bit so that we can hear what this book is all about. Can you um, set up what you're going to read before we get into it? Yes, I'm going to read, um, I'm going to do the thing that you're not supposed to do, which is I'm not going to read something from the beginning of the book. I'm going to read something from smack in the middle of the book. Uh, and I'm reading it because I like it and I want to read it. Um, and what's going on, um, very briefly, is that there's a girl named Kate. She is on a, um, she's on a steam train and she is in the company of a small group of animals who she has made friends with. And they are all on their way to various places. And there is a venomous snake who we've discussed. There's a porcupine. There's a heron. There is a fishing cat. We can talk about those. Um, and they are all sort of sitting around. Um, oh, and this baby pangolin, but he doesn't say anything because he's just a baby. And they're all, they're sitting around and they're sort of having a chat. And Kate is getting to know these animals a little bit. And she's getting to know and understand a little bit how they see the world, which is different from how she has been seeing the world up until this point. And somebody says something embarrassing. And the heron, who is a very tactful, useful presence, um, very kind individual, the heron, also very useful for exposition. The heron says, um, did you know that baby pangolins are called pango pups? That's a stupid name. The snake hissed. You can see why I like the snake. Um, he always has something <laughs> angry to say. They should call them pangolings, the fishing cat said, or pangolini. Baby porcupines are called porcupets, the porcupine said with a shudder of disgust. I don't see why humans think they get to name everything. They're not even very good at it. Electric eels. They're not even eels. It's true, they're not eels. Um, in Australia, there's a spider called a sparkle muffin. And what about hellbenders, the snake said. Do they bend hell? Not even slightly. It's my Wallace Shawn voice. I always imagined the, the, the snakes being Wallace Shawn. Um, I wish I were called a hellbender, the cat said. Such a wonderful name. Wasted on a salamander. I don't understand what just happened. Kate still felt shaky. Who were those animals out there? There was a little incident where some animals did, that didn't have tickets tried to force their way onto the train um, and they were repelled and it freaked Kate out. Then the porcupine said those were invaders. Well, were they invading the train? The animals all exchanged a look. It's like this, the heron said. As an animal, you have a place where you live and a place in the order of things. You prey on somebody, somebody else preys on you. It's not always pretty, but it keeps everything in balance. But sometimes, an animal leaves its place in the world and goes somewhere else, somewhere where it doesn't fit in. Often it just dies there because the climate's wrong or there's nothing for it to eat. But every once in a while, it lucks into a situation where it has lots of things to prey on and there's nobody to prey on it. What do you think happens then? I don't know, Kate said. It gets really fat and happy and dies of old age. It eats everything in sight. Its population explodes till it's the only thing left. The balance is lost. Oh, so those animals who tried to get on the train were trying to do that. Exactly. It's just bad form, the snake said. I hope you quilled them. I should have, the porcupine said. But some of them, I mean, 
They were just starlings, Kate said. You know, little birdies. Everybody hissed and growled and squawked at this. Let me tell you a story about starlings, the porcupine said. Starlings originally came from Europe. That's where they're supposed to live. But then some idiot got it into his head that North America should have members of every bird species mentioned in the works of Shakespeare. If you peruse the finished book, by the way, you will notice that the word idiot does not appear in it. It is not okay anymore to use the word idiot. I didn't know that. Um, especially since Enid Blyton uses it like every other word. You can't say that anymore, and I, and I don't use that word anymore. Some idiot got it into his head that North America should have every members of every bird species mentioned in the works of Shakespeare. Who's Shakespeare? The fishing cat asked. That is actually kind of a cool idea, Kate said. No, it isn't cool. It isn't cool. It was a catastrophe. This idiot released 60 European starlings in New York City, and they made it and bred, and now they're all over America. There's 200 million of them. This is true. That actually happened. Okay, but... What about those squirrels, though, Kate said. Little furry gray squirrels. Oh, they went the other way around, the porcupine said. Gray squirrels are from America. But then a tourist brought a few home to England because he thought they'd look nice on his country estate. Nice! They have a high old time in England. They eat birds, they kill trees, and they've driven the native red squirrels practically to extinction. Kate thought about that. It didn't seem like anybody involved had had such bad intentions, really. They were small gestures. She still thought the Shakespeare thing sounded cool. But then look what happened. Everything that was so neatly balanced was ruined. Couldn't they send the animals back where they'd come from and start over, she wondered? More carefully this time. But how would you catch 200 million starlings? She doubted she could even catch one. Or a squirrel. There was no going back. The balance was lost forever. So I'll stop there. You can wonder whether the balance ever gets refound again. <laughs> so there's there's obviously a lot of talking animals in the Silver Era, which makes sense given the subject matter. When you're writing an animal, what's that like? Is it different from writing for people? Oh, it's different. It's much better. It's it's much better than writing for people. I I love to write uh, about talking animals. Uh, I love to write the. I love to sort of be the voice of a talking animal, um, and I think it's because animals have. A number of qualities which I admire, but I personally lack. Um, animals, it's my sense, they have very powerful sense of who they are. They um, have a sense of presence in the kind of, in the mindfulness sense of the world. Animals are always, they're there. They're not lost in some stupid memory or some stupid fantasy or some regret about what you said in the sixth grade or something like that. Animals are very much right there with you. When you are there, the animal is there. You know, they have, they're not self-conscious. Uh, they don't get embarrassed. And I like that about them. Um, it makes them very, um, they say interesting things because they're not embarrassed. We have an audience question that I think rolls nicely on this one. Well, it's from Katya. What was the deciding factor in which personality went with which animal? Oh, that's such a good question. Oh, I wish you hadn't asked that question. It's, it goes to the heart of everything <laughs> that, that was hard about writing the book. Um, I thought a lot about this question. Um, what animal, but, and, 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 and the results we're kind of all over the map. Just for example, the porcupine. Um, the porcupine has a prickly personality um, and is very irritating and defensive. Um, and I thought at the time, oh, it's such a cliche. I'm having a, I'm having a, a, a porcupine um, and he has a prickly personality. But the fact is, uh, porcupines, I don't think, are, have very good tempers. They're very antisocial creatures. They don't hang out with each other. Um, they don't have a lot of friends. You know, they just sort of hang around by themselves. Um, mambas, 
uh, by contrast, play against type. They're very shy snakes. They live in trees. They don't really muck around giving people a hard time. If they wanted to, they could bite a lot of people, but they don't. They hardly ever bite anybody. So there was this nice feeling about the snake kind of playing against type. Um, And then there is the fishing cat. I didn't know that fishing cats were a thing. I had never heard of them until I saw one in a zoo in Australia. My wife is Australian, which is why I spend so much time in Australia. Uh, And it was just so astounding to me that there was a cat uh, that um, would sort of dive and swim uh, for its prey. Uh, I found that so enchanting. But I also sort of thought um, they must feel like sort of oddballs a little bit in the cat world. Um, they, because uh, they're just, they do the kind of thing that not many cats like to do. Um, and they must be regarded with some suspicion and bafflement by other cats. Um, so the cat, you know, he feels, she feels a bit, a bit like an oddball. Um, so, you know, there was just some sort of some thinking through um, about what the particular circumstances of each animal, what kind of a person they would produce. Um, uh, the last one I'll mention is the heron. The heron is a white-bellied heron. There are very few white-bellied herons left in the world. They live in South Asia and they have been the victims of a lot of, of poaching and habitat destruction. Um, and, you know, there's like 300 of them left. Um, and it doesn't, they don't seem like a species that we will be able probably to save. Um, so, you know, the heron is a good-natured heron. Um, but, uh, you know, in the back underneath that, there's a great deal, I think, of sadness and having to work through this, you know, enormous tragedy that, that this animal is experiencing. So you can see I've pretty much over, I've overthought pretty much each one of them. I think that's great, though, right? Like, how do you get into the head of an animal that, you know, is not overthinking anything, probably? You overthink it. <laughs> so the, the talking animals in the Silver Era are very different from the talking animals in magicians um the talking animals and magicians are snarkier and drunker as a rule which one is more fun to write and which one do you think is a more accurate reflection of what goes on inside an animal's actual brain you know it's tough my sort of uh my education about writing how to write talking animals I went through two stages and one was the um uh the th white stage where i just read um the sword in the stone over and over again because he does it so well and then uh, I was one day I was reading one of the Hitchhiker Gu- Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy books, um, not the first one. Uh, I feel like it was probably one of the later ones. I should go back and check. Um, but in one of them, Arthur Dent, the hero, as you probably know, is, it's a throwaway joke line from Douglas Adams because he was a genius and could just have amazing throwaway lines and just throw them away. Arthur Dent um, goes to a planet where he's living and he learns to speak the language of the birds and he immediately regrets it because all the birds talk about are uh, wind shear and seeds. That's all they talk about. And they're such bores. And he just wishes that he'd never learned the language of birds. So when I wrote uh, A Talking Bear into the Magicians, which I think is probably the first talking animal that I ever tried to write, I, I, I made him into a little bit of a bore um, along the <laughs> Douglas Adams um, uh, mode. And I felt as though I could do that because... He just got one scene, really, um, although he makes a cameo in Magician's Land. Uh, he got, just got one scene, and it would be okay to have a boring character because there's like eight other people in the room. Um, I had to walk things back a little bit um, for Silver Arrow and make the animals more, they're, they're sort of more generalists. They have a wider uh, uh, range of interests. Um, do I think that would genuinely be the case? I don't know. The truth probably lies somewhere in between. Uh, so we have another audience question from Kerwin. 
Well, you go into mythical creatures like dragons and sea serpents in um, in any of these books, any of these Silver Arrow books, or are you going to stick to real existing creatures? I feel that one of the constraints of the um, Silver Arrow, and I, I'm not going to pretend that the Silver Arrow is an example of a great amount of writerly discipline, because there's a talking steam train and talking animals in them. There's too many things really that are talking than should actually talk in real life. Um, so you can see I didn't exercise a ton of restraint, but I feel like, <laughs> feel like one of the constraints of this world um, ought to be that we only have animals that are real in it. My, my kids, you know, there was a lot of back and forth with my kids as I was um, telling the story and kind of working it out. Um, and one, they contributed a scene where the Silver Arrow pulled up to a station. Um, and instead of there being animals on the platform, there was a lot of furniture. There were chairs and <laughs> umbrella stands and lamps. And each of them had a ticket and the doors open and all the furniture just shuffled onto the train. Um, and, you know, Tom and Kate sort of ex exchange a glance like, I don't know what's happening here. And then they all get all the furniture gets off a few stops later. Um, and I, I <laughs> because of my extraordinary writerly discipline, I cut that scene because I felt like, no, I have to draw the line somewhere. Um, and I will probably draw it uh, ahead of um, uh, any, any, any mythical species, much as I love them. Minor side note, there, was a, there used to be a dragon in The Magicians, and I also had to cut that because it had nothing to do with the story. I just love dragons, and so I wanted them to be. Um, <laughs> however, I did rework that same chapter and put it in the sequel. So there you go. Writing a sequel is the best revenge. Um, that's, I guess, where you put your dragons. Kids in this kind of like classic fantasy novel, they're always a little impertinent. And it means they get to ask all these questions that adults don't like. Why? Why are we doing things this way? Why is the world like this? Just why? And I was thinking the other day about how, about this and about like how in the Passover story, because I'm Jewish, the kid who does this is called the wicked child, right? The kid who questions why is called the wicked child. But even then, like, it, I feel like what that does is leave us all cheering the wicked child in right. the Seder story. So Kate has a rebellious streak. She absolutely does. But she's also very quick to accept a lot of the fantastical elements and the things that are happening to her and her brother once they actually get on board the Silver Arrow. What is it about her or the world that makes that possible? Well, it's interesting. Kate is is um, is quite unlike me, quite unlike the child that I was. I was not, I was not the wicked child. Um, I I was, um, if anything, I was he who hath not the capacity to inquire. I was a very silent child, um, and I didn't really talk very much, um, especially around adults. Um, and I was not impertinent at all. I, I was very pertinent child. Um, which isn't like Kate. Kate um, isn't afraid of anybody, you know. At this, but at, you know, at the same time, Kate's very hungry for um, hungry for experience and disinclined, I guess, to look a gift horse in the mouth. She is, you know, very keen and very. She's also she's also very present, much like the animals. Um, and she kind of she's very pragmatic. She doesn't get lost in trying to. Uh, sort out the theoretical implications of everything that's going on. Um, she she is very good at homing in on problems and um, and and solving them. So she's not you know she can and, and it's kind of a relief as a writer. She doesn't walk around through the whole book just being utterly gobsmacked with every new thing that happens. She's she <laughs> likes to sort of she likes to get down to business um, and, and brass tacks pretty quick. So in that place you know she's not like one of those she's not one of your dreamy heroines. Um, 
she uh you know there's a reason why her uh um her role model in life is a is a, a computer engineer because she's a she's a problem solver and she likes to get into brass tacks the rest can just you know other people can deal with that do you feel like that ties into the themes of the book at all because i reading this and, and thinking about that i thought you sort of need somebody with a certain amount of responsibility who feels a certain amount of responsibility for and cares for things outside herself in a way that like some of those classic fantasy kid, like classic kids fantasy heroes don't at least at the start. Uh, I, I have been asked um, uh, because this is the kind of question that we are trained to ask about books. You know, what is the message of the book or what's the theme of the book? Um, and I just, spoiler alert, books don't have messages or themes. Um, that's actually not, I don't think that, I don't believe that that's how they work. Um, but if, if they did, you know, one thing that I tried, that's, that I tried to put in there was the sense that, and this is something Kate has to sort of work through and work past, this piece of advice that people not, um, you know, w wallow too much in, in sort of shame and despair. Um, you know, humanity has done a lot to damage the earth um, and the biosphere that we and the animals inhabit. And yet I sort of feel like I can't emphasize enough how little the animals are interested in human shame or, um, uh, or, or, or guilt or regret. Um, it is of no value to them whatsoever. That the kind of self-flagellating school of um, uh, environmentalism is something that, you know, I urge everybody to, to move past. Um, and Kate is able to, I think, move past it and look towards the future and try to find, you know, the very best future that she can. Um, that's something that's in her nature to do anyway. So she has a little bit of an, of an advantage. Um, I'm a great waller in shame and embarrassment. Um, so I think it's something that I'm trying to encourage myself to do. Hmm. So one more, and then we'll go to the Q&A, really get those questions in there. You recently posted a picture of your daughter, Hallie, who you've described as sort of a template or inspiration for Kate reading The Silver Arrow. What did she think? Oh, she liked the Silver Arrow. I'm really, I think, I'm really happy to be able to say honestly that that she liked the Silver Arrow. She is, uh, um, she is a great, a, a great reader um, uh, herself. Um, I wouldn't say. I wish I could say the Silver Arrow was her favorite book. I don't think it is. But <laughs> even I have to admit that there are better books out there than the Silver Arrow. But she likes it a lot. Um, she's very, she's very fond of the animals. She, she has that feeling that you have sometimes where you, you feel s seen by a book. You know, when there's a moment when Kate is her first morning on the train and she goes to the breakfast buffet, she's, everybody's well, this is a very well catered book. I feel like there's a lot of decent food in the Silver Arrow. That's not a problem. <laughs> um, and she takes a bunch of food and she takes it to a table by herself and she sits down there with a book and, um, and just reads her book and eats breakfast. I think when Hallie read that, she felt very seen by it. She felt, yes, I am also that kind of person. That is what I would do. I think that bit made her happy. For the best, and possibly worst, in industrial, avant-garde, and outside music, tune in to The Other Side of the Tracks, Tuesday mornings from 12 midnight to 3 a.m. on KSQD, K-Squid, Community Radio for Santa Cruz County. If you're just joining me, my guest today is New York Times bestselling author Lev Grossman, whose middle grade novel, The Silver Arrow, came out last month. All right, so we're going to go to the Q&A, and I'm going to start with some questions that have nothing to do with anything we've talked about, because I, I think that'll be fun. So Matthew says, 
You've been a journalist and a novelist. How did you make the shift from one to the other? And was it always your goal ultimately to focus on fiction? It, I mean, it was. It was always my goal to um, to uh, focus on fiction. But, you know, it, it's interesting. And, and journalism, was, it was a very secondary thing for me. Um, it was something I, 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 I backed into. And then once I had backed into it, I wanted very much to do it and worked very hard at it. But at first I wanted to be a fiction writer and I just, I can't exaggerate. Um, and I say this, especially for people who are thinking about, who, who are interested in writing themselves. I can't exaggerate how unsuccessful I was as a writer for a very, very long time. I wrote fiction for probably 20 years before I ever wrote a piece of fiction that was at all successful. And that was The Magicians. And it came out when I was 40. So, you know, that took a while. And in the meantime, um, I, uh, I had to make a living because I was not gonna support myself and my fiction that nobody read or bought. Um, so I, I became a journalist and I worked at a magazine. I worked at Time um, for a long time, 18, 19 years, I guess. Um, and that taught me a lot of important lessons about writing. Um, you know, magazines, uh, magazine writing is very different. You know, you don't use fancy words and you don't get excited about your own prose and you deliver it on time and you, you know, write a lead that gets people's attention um, and you put a lot of information across in a very clear way. Um, these were important lessons for me and they made my fiction a lot better. That was a very beneficial thing. And so when I moved back into fiction, really from having spent this time writing for time, I took a lot of that with me um, and it made my, my fiction writing a lot better. It seemed weird, I think, to um, a lot of people, um, my colleagues and, well, a lot of people, um, moving from journalism to, to fiction. Um, but it was where I had been aiming at all along, it just had to go kind of a roundabout way to get there. All right, we have another, I think, journalism-related question from Tanya. Hi, I loved your essay on Leonard Wolf and fantasy and modernism in The Believer. Can you say more about how that essay came to be and have you written other pieces like it? I'm grateful to you for bringing up that piece, which I feel really proud of. You know, that was a piece, it had a funny genesis, which was that uh, this was a, a piece I wrote for The Believer, um, and it was about Leonard Wolf, who was the husband of um, Virginia Wolf. But before he was the husband of Virginia Wolf, um, he did a long stint as a civil, ser civil servant as in um, Sri Lanka, or Ceylon, as it was then known. Um, and he has a strange encounter with um, a colleague of his who um, basically was a sort of early fantasy writer and a really unsuccessful one. Uh, and Wolf basically made fun of him a lot um, and then went off to become... Uh, uh, the husband of the greatest novelist of the 20th century. Uh, but it was this fascinating encounter. And I remember my mom telling me about it because my mom is a writer and she reviewed Wolf's memoir uh, when it came out. Uh, she read some passages aloud, which were funny about this guy who wrote books about fairies um, and was sort of, uh, Wolf was, way, was strangely attracted to him um, and also repelled at the same time. And we had a good laugh. But then it must've been 15, 20 years later, I found myself, I could never forget about that guy. And I wondered what happened to him. And so I tracked, I figured out who he was and I sort of tracked him down in real life and found the shipping manifests that he, you know, that recorded him uh, and found out where he died and all that sort of stuff. Um, it was something that I really loved doing. And I've only ever written one essay that was really vaguely comparable. And that was about Vladimir Nabokov's uh, brother, Sergei, who was another one of these kind of lost literary figures, literary adjacent figures. Um, he wasn't a writer himself, 
Um, but he was a fascinating person um, and he was gay and Nabokov had a lot of trouble dealing with that fact and initially wrote him out of Speak Memory, his memoir. Um, and then, but you see him come back in, in Nabokov's work in tons of different ways. Um, and he had a tragic death. He died in a concentration camp in World War II. Um, and I remember tracking him down, which nobody had ever done before. Um, that's the only piece of writing I've ever done comparable to that. And it was incredibly, incredibly rewarding. I remember calling, because this was in the 1990s, um, I remember cold calling Nabokov's sister, who was the last surviving um, Nabokov sibling. Um, this is somebody who, you know, who had lived through the Russian Revolution. Um, and she had gone on, her last name was then Sikorsky because she married the helicopter magnate, mm. Sikorsky. And I remember calling her and her picking up. Um, and it was the strangest thing, the most wonderful thing, talking to Nabokov's sister. Um, yeah, it was very rewarding doing that kind of writing. And I wish I had more time for it. Um, but I'm glad you read the Leonard Wolf thing um, because um, I'm very proud of it. So we have a question from Brenda. Rereading The Magician King and just read about the train scene in the ocean from the Mudjack. Was this a cameo, I guess a backwards cameo, uh, by the Silver Arrow? Um, it was definitely a, pre it was a pre premonition of the Silver Arrow. Um, um, I think it was a kind of... Um, yeah, I don't know. It was it was a it was a it was a yeah, I guess it's probably an advanced cameo. It was probably an echo, although I don't think I realized it when I was writing of um one of my favorite movies and indeed one of my favorite things in the world Spirited Away, the Miyazaki movie, mm. um which has this scene where uh, a train goes over the ocean. Um I just I've watched it so many times and I, you know, it's one of the the feeling that it gives me is the feeling that I often write towards and try to give to readers. Um, and I'll tell you an embarrassing anecdote about myself. I once met Miyazaki because he had come to America to do press to promote Ponyo. Uh, and he came to Comic-Con in San Diego. And I was also in Comic-Con in San Diego. And so I arranged to interview him. And in the middle of interviewing him, I burst into tears, which I have never done. It was, the, oh, no. it was one of, I wish, I wish I could say it was my least professional moment as a journalist. It probably was not. But, um, and I think I got kind of got the impression this happens to Miyazaki a lot because he wasn't that phased or surprised <laughs> by it. Um, but I, I'm, you know, I'm just, I'm, I feel passionately connected to that, um, to that movie and especially that scene. Um, uh, and I think it, it echoed itself in um, The Magician King. Um, though it's never really explained. So I feel like we actually got to, Get into a little bit where that train was going and what it was doing. So we have a question from Sam. There's a lot of animals in your works. We've talked about plenty of them today. Who is your favorite animal that you've written, Lev? And I'm told I can answer too, so I'll let you answer first. But mm -hmm. I might do that. Um, do I <laughs> do I know the answer? It's a really good question. It's probably it's probably that bear, humble drum. <laughs> uh, although, you know, um, there's a very, very brief uh, appearance uh, of a talking hedgehog early on in The Magicians. You absolutely blink and you missed it. He doesn't have any lines, actually. He just It's mentioned that he's a hedgehog who can talk. I always liked his, his name was Prickleplump, and I always liked him. And then and one day in the mail arrived a beautiful oil painting that somebody had done of Sir Prickleplum, and it, he was done in a kind of old master style where he was sort of looking very, very dignified and uh, there was a landscape behind him. I wish I could, I wish it was in my room, but it's a very sought after commodity in my house and it's currently in um, Hallie's room. 
Um, I've got, I've got to say, it made me very fond of, of Sir Prickleplump, and I feel like um, maybe I should bring him back in the Silver Arrow. I really liked the, I mean, I like a lot of the talking animals, because as you said, they're so fun. But I really liked the sloth in in the books in, is it The Magician King or The Magician's Land, where we have the sloth on the munch? Yes, um, she's in The Magician King. Um, I felt like I did a good job with her. Um, I, um, I don't feel like I like her pers- personally as much much as I like some of the other animals. Um, she's, um, uh, well, she's just very slothy. Um, I don't know that I would hang out with her, you know, before I would hang out with Sir Pickle Plum, for example. Sent to test Quentin's patience. Yeah. Uh, we have one from Theo that I think is similar, but about real animals, if I'm reading it correctly. What's your favorite animal? Mm. It's funny. Uh, I, I had a conversation um, with another writer about uh, talking animals. Um, Jeff Vandermeer, who uh, coincidentally also wrote his first book for young people um, this year. It's called um, A Peculiar Peril. It's incredibly good um, and everybody should seek it out. Um, But Jeff is an actual, he enjoys hiking. He's an outdoor person and he regularly comes in contact with animals, um, which is very funny because I am an indoor person and I do not and on any kind of a regular basis, uh, come into contact with animals. I like to think about animals a lot. Um, and I recently acquired a cat, so now I have a cat. But uh, I don't come into contact with animals that much. If I had a favorite animal, I could do top three animals. Top three animals, okay. bears, whales, and bees. I think those are my three favorite animals. Um, and... Uh, uh, there is actually a bear in the Silver Arrow, and I'm very strongly leaning toward having a hive of bees in the sequel to the Silver Arrow. I'm still trying to work out whether the bees should each individually have a voice or whether they are a quote unquote hive mind and are a collective voice. I don't know if you have any feelings about this, Clara. No, I think you should play. I think, I mean, you could go, you could do the like uh, Locutus of Borg or the, um, like you could, you could have the one that has the separate personality or the queen could have the separate personality, right? Those are yeah. sort of things you can play with. Yes, I know. I, but like a nice Borg. A, a nice Borg, exactly. Borg. <laughs> <laughs> a nice, friendly, pollinating Borg. All right. Well, um, I think I'm going to do just one more. So this one is from Katya. If you were to recommend a piece of children's literature for two adults, what would it be? Hmm. That's such a good question. What, what would it be? There's so many really wonderful ones. When um, when you have kids, you spend a lot of time rereading works of children's fiction, and you are, you know, you're often um, reminded of the fact that they um, they are as powerful as, as as adult literature. There are a number of works of fiction, uh, especially by all creatures great and small. Who are those? Um, mm. Harriet, James Harriet. There are several short stories of James Harriet that I simply cannot read aloud because I start to cry in the middle of them. Um, the the book that I recommend most often is Watership Down, which, um, you know, I truly love. It's one of those amazing one-off works of fiction that's not like anything else. You know, it really gets at the rabbitness of rabbits. It's about rabbits. And it gets at the rabbitness of rabbits. Um, they are, you know, they are very much themselves and they have rabbity emotions. Um, I can't say enough good things about it. <laughs> Well, on that note, thank you so much for being here with us at, at this Kepler's virtual event. Um, yeah, I think I think that's just about it. So, Angela, 
Thank you so much. What a wonderful conversation. Um, we're all going to wish that we could talk to our animals now. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Remember, you can pick up a copy of The Silver Arrow at Kepler's.com or at the bookstore. Tonight's fabulous event was produced by Kepler's Literary Foundation. If you're in a position to contribute to keep us producing events like this, please consider a donation. There's a donate button at Kepler's.org. And if you'd like to get in touch with us directly, our contact button is there too. Stay in touch with this Kepler's community. Check out our upcoming events under the heading Refresh the Page. Next up, we're hosting Rick Ryden, October 13th. Please join us again. Stay well, be happy, have a great evening. Catch Story Behind the Story on the first Friday of every month from 5 to 6 p.m. during the second hour of Talk of the Bay right here on KSQD 90.7 FM. To share your thoughts on this or other shows, drop me a line at clara at ksqd.org. Next month, I'll talk to poet Elisa Gabbert about her prescient collection of essays, The Unreality of Memory. The Story Behind the Story is produced for KSQD 90.7 FM by me, Clara Shirley Appel. Our sound engineer is Lanier Sandmans. He also wrote our theme. Me and my arrow Straighter than arrow Wherever we go Everyone knows It's me and my arrow Me and my arrow Taking the high